Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Sinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. Hey, everyone. We have a very special guest today. It is Danny Siegelbaum. She is an agent at Carol Mann Agency, and boy, does she have stories to tell. I can't wait to dive into nonfiction and how it relates to the real world. Hi, Danny. Welcome. Hi. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. So tell us about you and what you're most excited to find right now. Yes. Um, So I am a vice president, subsidiary rights director, and literary agent at the Carol Mann Agency. And I work a lot on nonfiction and a little bit of fiction. I'm looking to grow my fiction list, but I'm really looking for books that, you know, I get to learn something. There's maybe a biography on someone that I didn't know about this person and think, you know, everyone in the world should know who this person is or a story that really, really captivates my attention and makes me just, I can't put the book down. That's really, you know, what I'm looking for at the end of the day is, does this book make me want to keep reading? Am I learning something? So yeah, it's a, it's a, a low bar, I guess you could say. I'm not looking for anything like specific of this, specific of that. But, you know, if I'm really captivated by the story, then that's a, that's a good sign. So can you tell us what you do in terms of foreign rights and what that means? Or subsidiary yes. rights, you said. Yes. So okay. it's encompassing audio, foreign, film and TV. Um, I essentially am the liaison between our fabulous co-agents around the world and our uh, books within the agency. So if we, you know, have world rights, if we have audio, if we have film and TV, I am the person that tries to connect our agents to these amazing projects. And hopefully we get to sell them around the world. Can you tell us what benefits authors will get from having subsidiary rights and somebody working on them versus um, just putting the book out there and hoping? Yes. Um, so, you know, I am personally submitting, just like I do for our domestic projects, I am submitting to our foreign co-agents so they can submit to their publishers. They are getting, you know, the full PDFs of the manuscript. They are getting covers. They're getting all the information they need, just like a domestic um, submission, but, you know, to people in China, Japan, Spain, anywhere around the world. Um, So it's more of a personalized touch, I guess you could say. I'm connecting with these countries to sell these books in different languages. I love it when people have a shelf of all of the books in different languages that came to the office. Do you have one of those? It's very cool. I get to see, you know, all of these covers translated in different languages and seeing the different versions compared to the U.S. version is very cool. It's very exciting to see and our authors love it. I have heard that it is easier to get clauses into contracts in other countries about not using AI to train on the manuscript itself. Have you seen that as well? Yeah, we're starting to see more and more of that. Um, I think our foreign publishers are really eager to work with some of our authors. 
and they're very respectful. I think that's a good word, respectful of doing right by these books of our authors and of their books and making the translation as accurate as possible. So they're very willing to get approval on covers and titles or making sure AI is not part of it. So I'm hoping U.S. publishers are equally as respectful. I have a theory, and perhaps it's a cynical one, but that it's basically a corporate problem, and we all agree that it would be better for everyone to have these clauses in the contracts. But I think there probably needs to be one big author who refuses to sign their contract until the AI language is in there, and then suddenly they can copy and paste the same language from these other contracts, put it in there, and say corporate agrees, and then everyone's happy. Um, is that your read of the situation, too? I- totally agree. It usually takes someone like that, like a a Stephen King or someone huge to say, you know, this doesn't really work for me and it probably doesn't work for other authors. So I'm going to put my foot down on this. Um, Isn't that how all change is made? Um, So I absolutely agree with you. I wish that it wasn't considered collusion for people to get organized in that way. Oh, man, it's publishing is interesting, I guess. But yeah, I hope, you know, AI is not part of the conversation in publishing just because I think it's just not genuine or, again, let's use the word respectful for authors. Yeah, I mean, we're doing this for art, right? Art makes you feel things. I really doubt that a AI-generated story is going to understand and reflect the human experience in the way that we want it. I know it's always a cute idea to be like, hey, here's this thing that eliminates the need to pay people. Therefore, it's good for this quarter. So let's do it. Also, it's new. So let's do it. But it's almost as if the real practical ramifications of living in a world that's less nuanced in terms of the art have been completely ignored. And I think it takes away from the fact that these authors work so hard. They take so long and put in, you know, blood, sweat, and tears to make these books as great as they are when, you know, a computer is not going to do that, is not going to put their heart and soul into this. One thing that we're hoping to do in the next few months, and we've been, um, reaching out to experts in the field is to have someone give a talk, kind of like, remember how a couple years ago, there was always that family member saying, well, why don't you just upload your book to Amazon and have a bestseller? I feel like now there is the, well, why don't you just put your book idea into ChatGPT and have a bestseller? And so we are looking for tech folks who are able to talk about how humanity is necessary and what we're creating and how technology just isn't there, but also to give actionable feedback for what to say to that family member because there's always that guy and Thanksgiving is coming. I would love that because, you know, technology is often confusing for me. I'm the person that like never knows how to work any of my devices. So AI is like on a totally another level for me. So let's talk about nonfiction. What is it that you look for in nonfiction in addition to truth in a nuanced way? Absolutely. Um, A lot of my nonfiction right now is sort of female leaning, I guess, um, which is not a bad thing. And I think it's really just about learning about someone or something from a new, modern and fresh angle that you know, you're sitting there and you have this aha moment, like, oh my gosh, I didn't 
I didn't know that that existed or I had no idea who this person was. And you get this feeling where you're like, everyone should know who this person is or what this is. And, you know, it's it's an exciting feeling where even as an adult, you get to learn something new from what you're reading. It makes me happy that you talk about nonfiction reading as an experience and as a feeling, because I think so many people are like, nonfiction is for downloading input into my brain. But the very best nonfiction, the nonfiction with that real voice, makes you see things from a perspective that you never considered and have this full, incredible experience versus just here are some bullet points to memorize. Absolutely. It doesn't have to read like a textbook. I read um, my author's memoir last week and I was in tears because it was just so moving and emotional. And that is the kind of nonfiction people should be reading where you, you it, gets, it gives you all the feelings, right? Is that what they say? All um, the feels, yeah. All the feels, yes. Um, that is That is what nonfiction should do. So Danny, tell us, I think nonfiction is so interesting because- Everyone feels like it needs to be prescribed. How much voice is allowed in nonfiction? Yes. Um, so for memoir, I mean, the more the merrier, right? We want it to to scream voice. Um, and even for, you know, biographies, like, for example, Alexis Coe, who wrote You'll Never Forget Your First about George Washington. I read that book and I loved it because it was voicey, it was fresh, it was funny, but at the same time, you're reading a biography about a president, you know? You would never think to yourself that reading this could be so entertaining. So I love it when it actually does have a little bit of edge to it. Yeah, it sounds like voice and perspective, because it's a very modern perspective over something that happened quite a long time ago. Yes. But it almost provides the translation for the folks who are living now and how to understand something then. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think that's what makes it exciting and entertaining and yes, fresh and modern. So if you're willing, I'd love to talk with you about what you are looking for in terms of nonfiction for women right now. Um, I don't know if, are you on TikTok? I'm not. Okay. I'm on Instagram. My TikTok lately is all women who are like, you know what? We're done. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But it's, it's so interesting to me because it feels like enough people have shared enough stories that people are seeing the commonalities in these really common, nuanced situations. And it makes me wonder if nonfiction for women is going to change. Like I saw a book um, a couple of years ago, and then people are bringing it up now called How to Date Men When You Hate Men. Yes. Yes. I've seen that book. (laughs) And it's beautiful. It's this lovely color, bright flowers, you know, lots of pink. And it's just so interesting to me because as you're talking about like voice and perspective, this is a perspective we wouldn't have had even 10 years ago. Have you seen a lot of change in that space? Yes. I think, you know, women have more confidence and more, I guess, leeway and less fear to, to, do what they want to write what they want and they're not afraid to offend and i think that's fantastic where is the line between not afraid to offend and agents will be afraid to pick it up i mean it definitely depends on the agent um you know i'd love working with strong female authors who write about strong female characters especially in history 
that's that's part of why I wanted to be an agent was to promote books that did this. But I think if it's done well and accurate, I think don't be afraid. Would you say the bigger the voice, the more facts you need to back it up? Sure. Yes. I think regardless, if you're writing nonfiction, it should definitely be factual. I mean, we all sit there and watch these movies that are, you know, historical movies based on a true event and like the best part of the film was made up. I always, you know, Google the film afterwards and I'm like, wait, that actually didn't happen. That was the best part of the movie. I mean, that's such a letdown. So I do think, you know, it needs to be accurate. And that is why, you know, my authors are experts at what they're writing about. And, you know, it's really like their heart and soul, their bread and butter. And this is what they live in breathe. I love working with those people who can just nerd out on the most random, interesting tidbit and be like, this was my PhD thesis and I want to write a trade book about it. And, you know, I'm like, yes, I love that you're jazzed about this weird thing. Let's do it. So I think that's one of the best parts about my job is just helping people, especially women, you know, just get this really fantastic story out there. Can you tell us an example of some fun nerding out one of your authors has done? Oh my gosh. So I'm looking at a book right now that comes out later this month in September, and it's called Crusade to Heal America by Judith Pearson. And it is about the remarkable life of Mary Lasker. And not many people know who Mary Lasker is. She was a gorgeous socialite. But she is responsible for the creation of the NIH and getting the National Cancer Act passed. And, you know, she wasn't a doctor. She wasn't a scientist. She wasn't married to a doctor or scientist. She was just a socialite who saw that the country needed this and made it her life's work to use her connections and power and money to create what we now use every day, what helped us get through the pandemic, actually. Wow. Yeah. When was this? Um, in the early 1900s. So the National Cancer Act was passed actually in 1971. But, you know, she, you know, reinvented the American Cancer Society in 1944. It's, um, I'm probably botching all of these dates, but we wanted her to be a name along, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, for example, you know, just this incredible woman who did this incredible thing. Here's her book cover. I love that. I love the idea of putting forth stories of people who don't have all of the things things you think they would need to accomplish their goal. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I I love that because then maybe some of those readers out there will realize the same. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yes. I love, you know, seeing in my inbox proposals for things where I'm like, that is so interesting. I didn't know that. And I want everyone else to know that. So we're going to make it happen. I love how sometimes when you're learning about one thing, it opens up so many other things that you don't know. And then it just sends you down this incredible branching path of like this entire world. You had no idea was there. Um, Totally. But it has to feel inspiring when it does. It can't, again, be the list of bullet pointed facts. Mm -hmm. That's not going to get you there. That's not going to feel your curiosity. Absolutely. And I'm the kind of person to say there's like a, a weird news story 
I'm the person to be awake at 4 a.m. going down a rabbit hole and to wake up the next morning and tell my friends and be like, all right, I know every single thing (laughs) about this weird thing that happens because I was fascinated by it and it's four o'clock in the morning and that's when I decided to buckle down and do my research. (laughs) No, I like it. I feel like something that can keep you up that late because you are that curious, like how I wish I knew the ingredients for what made a reader curious. Do you have any theories? I think we would be very rich if we knew that. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, especially in today's world, I mean, you have TikTok, you see what people watch and are fascinated by. And, you know, it could be those cooking videos or, you know, I, I read somewhere that people like to watch like carpet cleaning videos because they find it relaxing or <laughs> yeah they, nothing too bad is gonna ever happen right one of those. right so it's very random very yeah. random I suspect it has something to do with establishing a scene and raising just the right ratio of questions asked to questions answered because if people know nothing they're gonna be lost but if they know everything they're gonna be bored Mm-hmm. And I think also sort of taking us out of reality for a moment to take us out of the headspace of our day, right? Of the stress of work, of our personal lives, or the fact that it's outside right now, or whatever it may be, something that can really sort of almost like a TV show, just transport you into a different mindset. I bet that the book that you just held up starts with a very vivid scene that is not in our world. Am I right? Yes. I mean, also, she was not alive in our lifetime. So that helps. <laughs> but I think that's what makes it even more interesting. Sensory details and a lot of the things that we use in fiction can work really well in narrative nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Do you work on fiction yourself or nonfiction? You know what's funny? I started out thinking I wanted to do adult nonfiction, and now I do mostly fiction. All of that changed over a number of years. Gosh, I mean, it must have been maybe only like four years into working in in agenting. I realized that I could articulate to myself that the best memoirs read like novels that happen to be true. Absolutely. And that's what I tell everyone when I do consulting or conferences or anything with memoir, because it's such a hard genre to sell unless you're a famous celebrity or something. So what about voice in a nonfiction book proposal? How much do you like and do you think it's necessary? I like to see a little bit of it. I think having your author bio highlight what you've done or, you know, where you've been previously published, whether it's a news article or a previous book. I think that sort of provides a little insight that seeing, you know, such a dry book proposal where it does read like a textbook, you know, I'm the first to have my eyes sort of fall asleep, right? So I think definitely having a little bit in a proposal because that's what you're submitting to editors as well. So they also need to get on board with your voice as well. Danny, what do you look for in a book proposal? Oh, man. I look for people that have shown that they can promote themselves. I think that's so important in today's world. If you wrote this fantastic book and you have no interest in being on social media, promoting yourself in any way, shape, or form, it's just, it's not going to work. Why would anyone want to buy anything if you're not able to even say like, hey, I wrote this book and it's fantastic. I think that is like definitely the first thing I look for is, are you someone that can sell yourself? 
because that's so important. Next, I look, are you an expert at what you do? Do you have a, a PhD in this or you've written prior books in this or you're a journalist or something that shows that, you know, this is what you live and breathe. I think that is super important. And then, you know, does the story captivate me? A lot of, and I'm sure you can totally agree with this, a lot of what we read we think is great, but can we sell it? That's another question. And I think a lot of people don't realize that what we read and what we sell are probably very different. Yeah, in my case, absolutely. I purposely read other genres in my off time. Yes. It's also, you know, for us, uh, sort of a brain break. But um, yeah, I I read mainly fiction in my off time. Someday I kind I mean, I realize this is wildly impractical and probably unhealthy, but someday I think it would be very cool to just be scanning where the blood is going in an agent's brain as they go through their submission pile and then like <laughs> throw something in there that's really good so you can see like where in our brains that Does something happens. like light up. Yeah. Yeah. They say light up for a PET scan. I know that's not technically scientifically correct, but I think it'd be cool. And of course, it's bad for you. They have to inject all kinds of stuff into you to do all that. But like, how cool would that be? Just like put an agent in there every day for six months and somewhere in that six months, they'll find something they like. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Where it's like, (laughs) you know, the brain has its aha moment. Yes. For science. Um, For science, because we really know what we're talking about as two people who work in publishing. (laughs) Yeah, most people in publishing do not know much about science, but can still work on science books. Yes. Um, Yeah. So what about the authors out there who are like, okay, I'm super passionate about this. I've studied it. I would love to be the expert in my field. I would love to have a ton of followers. Like, what do they do? What do the people do who've got the passion but not the numbers? Yeah. And I I don't think numbers always equate to sales. You know, get some writing accolades out there. Get some articles published. Um, I think that is also just as important as having Instagram followers or TikTok followers or, you know, whatever we want to call it. I think you know, showing that there is some sort of audience for your writing is super important. Um, so even if it's like a Huffington Post article or whatever, that that's great. Yeah, it's like social proof. It's like these other people paid me to write. Something. Right. Exactly. 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 And, you know, it shows that you can write a sentence. It shows that people are interested in what you're writing. So I think I think that's half the battle. Yeah. You know, I always wonder if it's literally just a form where they plug in numbers. There's not really a spot for that aspect of it. It's more like that's the sort of thing they'd bring up at an editorial meeting. Like, well, they don't have two million Instagram followers, but they were published here, here, here and here. And that's still really compelling, I think. Um, Absolutely. Because a lot of those people who are maybe reading that article, they might not even have social media or, you know, they might follow a completely different thing. They might only follow food people, even though they like to read about this or so I don't think it's like a clear this many followers equals this many book sales. Yeah, Definitely not. And I, I think, think I've started to see that. I think a lot of people misunderstand that. They think, well, I have this many followers, therefore all of them will buy the book. Every single one, yes. Every single one Every... of them. Even if they delete Instagram and throw their phone in a lake, they will see my post yes. and they will click on it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. 
But I'm glad we're coming to a more nuanced appreciation of it. Um, I remember one time years ago, I was working on a rare nonfiction, uh, rare for me, nonfiction project. And I remember one editor said, oh my gosh, this author has an amazing platform perfect for this book. Another editor said, what? I like it, but the platform's non-existent. <laughs> and it's so funny to me. I was so mad at the time. I was like, why is it so inconsistent? And then I realized... It's kind of like how subjectivity is good for us. It's good that it's not the same across the board. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, you know, I say that to my authors when they get passes on their submissions. I'm like, take everything with a grain of salt. You know, this could be an excuse. This could be what their sales team said. This isn't a reflection of your writing and who you are. Not at all. Yeah. I would love to see everyone's like worksheets or whatever. <laughs> it's probably not even a worksheet. I would love to see the metrics everyone uses to figure this out though, because it's very clearly very different for each Very, class. very different. And it sometimes is very different depending on the book, even in the same house, you know. There isn't, if we knew the formula, we'd be very successful at what we do. I asked a friend at Penguin once if I could um, sneak in, crawl through the vents, repel, repel down from the ceiling, open a computer, and find the PNL formula. And she said no. <laughs> and I, I was an editor at HarperCollins. So I know, you know, what the PNL looks like. I know what it's like to sit in those sales meetings. And it's still, there is not a perfect solution for everything. I'm sure they don't want you to talk about exactly how the PNL works right now on this podcast, but can you tell us anything about what those meetings are like? Yeah, I always say it's like when you're the editor, it's like you're a lawyer pleading your case in court and you need all of the ammunition, all of the data, all of the facts to answer as many questions as you possibly can that they try to throw at you. Like Shark Tank. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So I, I try to keep that in mind when I have an editor going to her sales team with my book. I'm always like, tell me what you need. I will give you as much information as you possibly could have because I know what it's like sitting in those meetings where they're throwing 10 million questions at you and you're like, uh, I don't know. I don't know the answer. Yeah. So it, it is truly like you are pleading your case in court. Well, and, and it's, sorry, go ahead. No, no. And I was going to say, and your the sales team is, is like the jury. It's unfair. I think that if they ask an obscure question and you don't have the answer ready, even if the answer is a good answer, it will make them lose confidence if you're like, I don't know. They're intimidating meetings. <laughs> um, and I think having an editor who is super passionate about something and having that passion really shine in those meetings is super important. Because the sales team will see that they are going to go as far as they can with this book as possible because they are so dedicated to it. Well, when we were talking about how we see a lot of books that are perfectly great, but we don't know if we can sell them. And I think that certain quality that is what makes this rise above the rest. For me, it's I put this down for a couple days and I'm still thinking about it. And to me, that is some kind of energetic staying power that will travel through my excitement when I write the pitch letter to the editor 
to that meeting so that they can feel that same little ball of energy packet that is in that work. And I think that's why it's so important that people like really inject their own energy into their book proposals and make it their own so that it's, you know, it's this perspective, it's this voice, it's this way of approaching the topic. It's all backed up by all of these facts that have been figured out by this expert in the field. But uh, assuming we have the platform, assuming we have everything else that is quantitative in place, for me, it really is that magic of just that energy of it. Absolutely. We all have those moments where, you know, we put down a book to go do something and it ends up being the next day and you're still thinking about it. And, you know, you're telling your family and friends, oh my God, I just read the most incredible book. You know, I, we all have those moments where, you know, the enthusiasm just really shines through in everything you do for that book. I noticed that if I try to talk about it before I've really let it like form in my mind and I'm tripping over all the descriptions and I'm like, wait, no, it's that, but it's this other thing. That means I've got so much forward momentum. I don't care if I look stupid. I'm going to tell you about this book and you're going to know about it. I like will word vomit the details to anyone who will listen and they're like, wait, what are you talking about? And I'm like, no, 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 it's so good. You don't understand. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, this is not something anyone does professionally, but like agents are in a world with friends and people who will listen to us generally nicely talk about the books and the things that we're reading. They're usually in interested. But yeah, if I want to tell every person I run into whether or not they like books, whether or not they like the genre, they're like, how are you? My answer is going to be, I read this thing. Yes. Our poor family and friends who have to hear us at the end of the day talk about 10 million books. But you know, <laughs> I think we probably have much cooler jobs than our family and friends. So. Um, yes. Uh, and I imagine some folks out there are like, I'll be your friends. So I- <laughs> But no, that really, I really think that is a vital step, the going through the put it down, see if you still think about it, see if you try to talk about it before you can't, see if you find yourself saying things like you said of like, no, but it's so good, you don't understand. You kind of like in that way workshop how you're going to talk about it. And then at least in my mind, once I have that really nice encapsulated high concept way of describing it, that's when I know I'm ready to go to my team and be like, hey, guess what I found? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was reading um, one of my author's memoirs last week. My fiance kept coming over to talk to me and I'm like, you need to go away. I need to keep <laughs> reading. Leave me alone. <laughs> He's like, oh my God, what is wrong with you? I'm like, I just need to finish this book because it is so good. Yeah, it's um, that forward momentum. Yes. It's the, like, I need to read this right now because I can't do anything else. Because I'm not going to be able to focus. Yes. And I think I emailed the author. Like, I wasn't even done with the book. And I was like, we need to get on the phone right now to discuss this (laughs) because this was incredible. Yes. Right the second. Stop what you're doing. Yes. Like, Like she could tell I was excited. But, but everyone loves that, right? Like everyone wants someone who sees all of the beautiful things in their work that they put in there. They want the, I see what you did there. They want the, I've told all my friends about it. And, you know, you're probably not going to be like, here are the dumb ways I tried to describe it before I figured it out. But <laughs> <laughs> it's part of the process. We all probably do it. So, okay. So let's go back to the very beginning. How did you know you wanted to work in publishing? And Do you remember going into Harper the first time for your interview? Yes. Um, Okay. So the short answer is I didn't know I wanted to go into publishing. Um, I was a journalism political science major in college, and I thought I wanted to be a journalist and write for like women's magazines. And I had a few interviews at some big 
magazines. And I remember sitting there going, this is horrible. I hate this, which is is good. You know, they just weren't friendly. I was going to be a glorified intern. And, you know, we've all sat in those interviews where you're like, okay, so I am just the next poor soul who walked in here to take this interview, you know? And I had a friend who was an editor at HarperCollins and she said, Danny, I know you like to read. I know you can write. Uh, This really cool imprint has an opening and I think you should apply. And so I did. I, you know, I had just graduated from college. I was very desperate for a job like every other person who had just graduated. And I went into HarperCollins. I took this interview thinking, you know, I don't even know if I want to do this. I don't even know like what this is. And I loved my boss. We had an interview for two hours and we were just chatting. And I remember- Two hours? Yes. And it wasn't even like questions. We were just talking and chatting and she did these beautiful, beautiful coffee table books. And I had a few of them. Tell me more. Tell me more about this coffee table book. So the imprint was, it's no longer, but it was called Harper Design. And they did really highly designed nonfiction books, um, a lot of fashion books, cookbooks, celebrity memoirs. And I had a few of them. I loved fashion. And so some of the books that she made, I had in my personal collection. And I always say it's like one of those jobs where it's like naming the nail polishes. Like you knew someone made them, but you had no idea that a real person could have that job. And I don't even think if she asked like if I was even capable of the job or anything, but we really connected and she thought I was smart enough to, I don't know, be her assistant. And sure enough, I was um, an editor at HarperCollins for two and a half years. It, It was like the greatest grad school publishing experience I could possibly have. I learned how to make a book from proposal to seeing it in the bookstore and everything in between. And it was just an incredible learning experience. And at that point, I learned what a literary agent was. I had no idea what a literary agent was before I worked at HarperCollins. And I quickly realized, hey, I actually like that job better than my current job. So that's when I decided I'm going to become a literary agent. What was it that you knew you liked better? So I really like working with the authors. I really like, you know, reaching out to them or them reaching out to me. And they have this just idea or concept and it's not really full, fully formed yet. And I loved working with authors on their idea from start to finish. When you're an editor, the idea is generally there, right? by the time a manuscript or proposal hits your desk. So I really wanted to work with authors from day one. I love that. So Danny, tell us, do you have a favorite, like a favorite time that you've seen one of your books out in the wild? Yeah, that's so fun. I love, you know, going into like an airport bookstore or a bookstore in a random city and being like, I worked on that book. My name is in the back of this book. Um, yes, I took a vacation to Greece and there was a few of my books in a book. No way. In Greece. In Greece. It was a very cool moment. Did you do the Greek translation deals for them too? So this was when I was at HarperCollins. So I think these were actually in English, but you know, I took tons of pictures. I love the idea. Did you grab plates and start just smashing them right there in the bookstore? (laughs) Like, (laughs) 
<laughs> it was a very, very cool moment. It was a very cool moment. I was I was telling Jessica that I was I'm getting married and I was registering last week. And Congratulations. One, of, one of the stores had a book that I worked on. And, you know, I was telling the lady, I was like, you know, I, I made that book. And she was like, what do you mean? And I was like, see, there's my name. And she actually had me sign where my name was. It was very funny. I love, I love that so much. I think it's so like, I've been thinking a lot about what it means to be like an agent and an editor and a, like you guys get to leave little pockets of your energy all over the place. It's so curious, right? And like this idea that something you put so much heart into with the author and this partnership that we have, this creative partnership, and then it's just there and it keeps moving on and on and on. And that, that's really what's so special about books and, you know, the creative process. I think it's curious that we have, like, writers have creative practice and how they get ready to work. Do you have a specific creative practice when you create anything and or when you work with things people created? I really don't. I mean, I am, I would say generally a very creative person. I was that kid who loved art class and, you know, lived for getting my hands dirty with paint and clay or whatever it was. Um, as an adult, my creative outlets now are, I love to bake. I love to cook. I think that's something that I really focus on now, probably more than, you know, I wish I was like taking art classes now, but with time, it's so hard. Um, but yeah, I love to make ice cream. I love to make cakes. My love language is definitely feeding anyone and anyone around me. So gosh, mine too. But I think that's that, that's so interesting, though, because I think if you're editing a piece and you're baking a cake, there's magic in moving into the space of just baking so that you can come back and actually yeah. be like really present for that piece. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, some people... Some people exercise, some people meditate, some people go to therapy. I would say baking is baking is my therapy. Can you tell us about a favorite baking book you're using right now? Oh gosh. So I collect cookbooks. I have like 300 in my house. Um, I'm trying to think. The Perfect Scoop by, I think it's David Leibovitz. We'll have to check that. Um, but it's a fantastic ice cream book. Um, anything Dory Greenspan touches, I'm obsessed with. Um, I'm trying to think what else, some new exciting ones that I've gotten. I also have all of my grandmother's recipe cards and she was a huge baker. So I have in her handwriting, all of her cards that I'd like to go through and see what I want to whip up. I love watching pastry TikTok. I oh. love watching people put in an extra layer of dough that like crisps up as it bakes and gosh, it's gorgeous. Like I can't even eat gluten anymore, but I want to see all the beautiful things happening with every pastry. Everywhere. Yes. I watch them on Instagram reels five days later, like every other person who doesn't have TikTok, but I could spend hours watching those. But I think there's like, like it goes into that correlation between like a perfect recipe is like a perfect book. <laughs> It is the right amount of like space between the ideas so that the reader can make their own assumptions. I, like I think, I think there's so much creatively that those two go together. It's kind of an interesting thing to talk about. 
Um, I love it so much. I almost feel like everyone needs a secondary hobby. So when you get stuck with your writing and you want to throw your laptop in a lake, here's the bread you can go make or here's the uh, YouTube you can go follow that's a dance class or here's the like I think everyone needs a healthy escape activity for the moments when they want to destroy their keyboard. Absolutely. Danny, do you have a favorite book that you're reading right now? Oh, gosh. I feel like every, I know. Does everyone in publishing like hate this question because I they're like, "Oh question. my god, what are we reading right now?" Also, what are favorites? Like, obviously, we need a full buffet of books at all times. Yeah, like, we can't just have one. Of course, my nightstand has like fifty books on it right now that I wish I could sit down and read forever. But "Horse" by Geraldine Brooks was one of the best books I've read this year. Is it literally about horses? Yes, it is on my list. It's so good, and it it's back to what we were talking about where you are learning about something that you had no idea existed that you're like, oh my God, this is so fascinating and so interesting. I love the micro trend. Is it a micro trend? I love the way that there are books now that are just a single title and it is such a deep dive. Like it makes me think of that book, Salt. And I'm like, I had no idea Salt was so complicated and politically loaded. Yes. You should read Horse. It was incredible. Would the Kens in Barbie like the book Horse? Do you remember how they were all obsessed with horses? Anyway. Yes. Yeah. I'm trying to think. Not in this way, probably. Not in this way, but I see what you mean there. But if we want to talk about the Barbie movie, I could talk about that movie all day. Yeah, do it. I loved that movie and I totally thought I was going to hate it without having any idea what the book, the movie besides like Barbie was going to be about. But I came out of that movie and I was like, oh my God. You know, it felt like it felt like what every woman feels that somehow they were able to articulate that. No, I have personally never been able to articulate. I think I came home and gave like a 45 minute speech on the patriarchy to my fiance. And he was just like nodding his head a little bit afraid of me. <laughs> but I, I tell everyone, I was like, I would go see it 12 times. You okay. guys, I haven't seen it. You have to go see I it. I haven't seen it. Okay, new book idea. Someone write this, please. How to talk to your boyfriend slash fiance slash male in your life about the patriarchy. Yes. Essentially, it was the Barbie movie. Yeah. I told him, I was like, this is required watching. You have to go see this. I will co with you, but we have to go see it. I also love that it's very serious, but also very pretty at the same time. And I feel like that gives everybody something to be able to tolerate the discomfort. And I think every single woman sitting in that movie was sitting there going like, right? Like, finally, someone understands what we feel every single day. Julie, I won't spoil it, but they talk about cognitive dissonance. It's great. (laughs) I mean, I can't wait. Okay, if you had to write a book proposal, like let's say you wake up tomorrow, you've got a huge platform. Obviously, you need to write a nonfiction book. What would you write it about? I always say I would never write a book. It's like you know how the sausage gets made, so you don't want to do it in real life. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I mean, so many of my agent friends are writers, too. And I'm like, oh, God, how do you do it? Aren't you exhausted? Um, What would I write about? Also, the book is guaranteed to be a runaway success. Well, then (laughs) Um, I'd probably write about making ice cream. My dog, Dottie, how to write the perfect nonfiction book proposal. I'm, you know, I'm coming up with things that cross my mind every day that I'm, I would consider an expert on. I'm picturing it kind of like that Amy Sedaris book about how to throw a party where it's like you get some how to's about how to do it, but you also get these gorgeous photos. So Dottie's in the background while you're making gorgeous ice cream. Dottie's in all of the photos. Absolutely. 
And it's definitely like a book where you're talking about how ice cream can have a positive impact on your life and some other like important stuff too. A meditation mm. of ice cream. Oh, that's mm-hmm. good. That's good. Or we could say frozen custard. Yes. Delicious. I love that. And it's cooked, perfect. When today is not just put in. <laughs> 98 degrees outside. It is really hot. Danny, what's your best advice for all the writers out there? Patience. This industry is so tough and, you know, it takes a lot of luck and a lot of patience, but just keep going. You know, there's so many areas and room to give up. But if you are really dedicated to your book, it will pay off. I like that. It's kind of like how um, I've been thinking about platform building is like long-term investing, right? Like you might not need it now, but someday you will really wish you started now. That's great. I'm going to use that. Yeah. But you have to think of your future self and a future where things are not on fire. So step one, the world will be fine in this hypothetical. Step two, you will want that later. I love that. Takes time to grow with interest. Don't ask me how it works. I work in publishing. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think, do I have tips to stay patient as a writer? I think everyone needs their secondary hobby so they don't freak out. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I think it is like you always need to just be working on the next project. Like once, I think once a book is down the chute or once, you, once a project's kind of out of your hands, the only thing you can do with keeping that patience is put your energy somewhere else. Any other tips, you guys? I think that's so true. I think my most successful and dedicated authors are always working on the next thing once they're done with the first thing. Yeah. Find a new obsession. Like everyone needs that one topic that they can talk about for 30 minutes that no one else wants that deep dive into. Go find yours. Go sit on TikTok for 12 hours, find some video that resonates with you and go for it. Or just something you didn't know about that sparks your curiosity. Like the way we were talking about that feeling of suddenly having all of these avenues open that you didn't even know existed and new things that you didn't know you didn't know. I think that's so important too. Absolutely. What is that quote? There is a The cure for boredom is curiosity. There's no cure for curiosity. Well, go get yourself some incurable curiosity, my friend. There's no (laughs) cure for for curiosity. It's Dorothy Parker. It has to be dark. I love it. Danny, we'd love to give out a meeting with you. Sure. Can you give the writers out there a code word to email us? And the first person with that code word will get a meeting with you. Yes. Um, What should my code word be? Ice cream? Sure. So the first person to email academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with ice cream in the subject line will get a code for a meeting with Danny um, to go over their query and talk about ice cream if you prefer. All right, Danny, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I had so much fun. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. And not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with first pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.